Now, please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and as you do so, yes, I do know that it's Mother's Day, and I try and make this day very, very special for Vicki, and I hope that you will for uh, your mother, wife in your home, for the ladies in your home, Um, but I do not regard this as um, an ecclesiastical uh, calendar day, and so we continue on with our series on the pastoral epistles. Now, even though we're reading um, the entire chapter, we're going to focus this morning on verses 6 through 10 of chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4, let us briefly pray. And now, Father, as we, your people, turn to this text, we ask that you will give to us a sense of reverence and awe before your word Where would we be had you not revealed yourself to us in the Holy Scriptures? And yet, Father, we know that all around us there are men and women who are attempting to live in in accordance with their own autonomy. We submit our autonomy to your Lordship and ask that now you will bring us under the Word and give to us hearts and consciences that are determined by what you teach in the Bible and help us to have no area of life that is contrary to it, but always believing and repenting and trusting. And for those who are in our midst who are lost and undone, may they come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Even though we address the church with matters regarding ecclesiology, we pray that lost people will come to Jesus through the preaching of the word. For it is your word and it is your spirit alone who can open the heart. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'd like to read the entire chapter this morning, beginning with verse 1. This is God's holy word. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus." Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy. When the council of elders lay their hands on you, practice these things, devote yourselves, yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
Now, I was listening to the radio as I was in the car coming to my study one morning this past week, and there was a pastor on the radio who was defending the idea of what he called having a virtual congregation and virtual communion, and he even defended virtual baptism. He didn't say how to do virtual baptism, but he did say how to do virtual communion. You tell people through the internet, you go somewhere in your house and find uh, a cracker, uh, juice, maybe some water, something to represent the body and blood of Christ, he said, and then the pastor online will lead you through communion. And as I was listening to this idea of a virtual congregation, virtual communion, virtual baptism, I was struck with how totally unbiblical this was and that it sets aside God's revealed plan for his church. God's revealed plan for his church is local congregations in which all of the people of God are a part. We are a part of the local congregation, the body of Christ, as it is locally manifested. This is what God expects of us as believers in Christ. Now remember, the pastoral epistles is written by Paul the Apostle for the purpose of passing on the torch. He knows that he and the other apostles are soon to be dead off the scene, and there are to be faithful men to whom the torch will be passed on. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is the calling of the church. And so the emphasis of the New Testament is on the local church in which there are preachers, elders, deacons, and the general office of believers and the sacraments administered. So the pastoral epistles are instruction to the church about doctrinal purity and passing on the faith. And if we are to be true to our mission of preaching the gospel in this world, We must have men who are called and set apart to teach the truth in local congregations over which they are overseers with the ruling elders and teachers and preachers of God's word. Now that's what he's doing in this chapter, chapter 4, verses 6 and following. He is talking about the teaching elder, the pastor, the minister of the word, and he is showing why that is essential if the church is to be faithful and if we are going to pass down the truth from generation to generation. Today we focus on verses 6 through 10, and we will come to the latter part, 11 through 16, next time. There's simply too much for one, for one morning. But the question is this. The question that should arise as we read the text is, what is a minister of the gospel anyway? What is a minister of the word? And this is among the most comprehensive passages describing who a minister is to be, and what he is to do, what his call is all about. Today we see three things. First of all, the minister of the Word is a teacher of sound doctrine. The minister of the Word is, first of all, a teacher of sound doctrine. Notice he says in verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And so he says, you need to put these things before the brothers, referencing what he has said primarily in the first five verses of chapter 4, in which we are told that in the latter times, false teachers will arise, the source is demonic, 
They are hypocritical liars with seared consciences, and the minister is to answer those false teachings appropriately and teach the word of God. And so a faithful pastor will address false teaching, knowing that Satan's aim is to pervert sound teaching and to ruin lives. False teaching leads to confusion. False teaching erodes love, and false teaching destroys the soul. And already in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, 18 through 20, chapter 4, verse 1, he is focused upon purity of doctrine and teaching the truth, and he does so now again in this passage. The manner of teaching that sound doctrine is also found in verse 6. The pastor is to point it out or to teach it. The ter- term there, hupatathemi, uh, uh, means to point it out. It's clear teaching about the truth. Uh, one New Testament scholar has pointed out that that word is used in an active sense in Romans 16.4 and is actually translated, risk their own lives, risk their own necks. So the point can be that it will be costly to be a faithful teacher of sound truth in the latter days. If a minister is not teaching, if he is not preaching the Word of God, if he is not pointing out error, if he is not warning as well as exhorting, if he is not warning as well as encouraging, even when it is not popular, he is just not fulfilling his calling. The minister's calling is to the exposition and application of the sacred scriptures. John Owen the Puritan rightly says, he is no pastor who doth not feed his flock. But I know that Owen would also agree that a part of that is warning, and he is no pastor who doth not warn his flock. And if we do this as pastors, we are told in verse 6, You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, the word servant there is diakonos. You will be a good minister. He's not talking about the office of deacon, but he is talking about the way in which the minister serves. He serves God, and he serves God's people by ministering the word of God to them. Being trained in the words, he says there in verse 6, the word can be nourished, being nourished in the words. As Hendrickson says, a minister who neglects to study his Bible and the doctrine based upon it atrophies his powers by disuse. Now, what does this require? You might say immediately, what it requires is a lot of knowledge, and you would be true. What it requires is a great deal of perseverance, and you would be right, but I'm talking about something even more fundamental. What does it require if a minister is to do this? What does it require if we are going to pass down through faithful men the teaching office and the word of God to be proclaimed? What does it take? I will tell you what it takes. It takes love. It takes love of God, love of God's truth, and love for God's people, so that nothing will derail the minister from his calling to minister faithfully the word of God. 
I mentioned John Owen, the Puritan, a few moments ago. He wrote and preached a sermon from a totally different text. It's a classic that is called The Duties of a Pastor. It's very profound, very convicting, very helpful for the minister to read. One of the things that he points out is that men in his day are simply not loving truth the way the Puritans did, the Puritan divines, ministers did in a bygone generation. And he says in that sermon, I'm paraphrasing, sound doctrine is not lost because of lack of knowledge. Sound doctrine is lost because of lack of love. And he's right. You see, a man may have the Westminster Confession of Faith and he may say intellectually, I believe everything in it. He may subscribe to it before his presbytery. But if he doesn't love it, it's going to be lost. It's not going to have a lot to do with his ministry. It's not going to inform the way in which he pastors. Knowing the truth intellectually, saying, I believe it's true intellectually, but having no passion for it, no love for it, is a sure way to lose the truth as we move along in the history of the church. So that is the calling of the minister, to teach the truth and to love it. And we do not love God, we do not love His truth, we do not love God's people if we do not teach and warn and expound the Scriptures. Also, will you notice that he goes on to say in verse 7 that he's to reject some things, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And so you are to reject, or it can mean decline, or avoid, or refuse what is not truthful. One commentator makes an excellent comment. While the minister must meet demonic teaching head-on and refute it with Scripture, he must not fritter away his time with silly religious trivia. False doctrine must be met with true doctrine. Silly myths merit disdain. Hendrickson puts it this way, he must not feed on trash. And so the minister is called to nourish his soul on the Word of God so that he can nourish your souls on the Word of God. He must know his message and tell it. And he must not be preoccupied with silly myths, but with the very text of Scripture. Now that's first. If we ask the question, what is a minister? He is a teacher, a preacher of God's truth, expounding the Word of God. But secondly, the text tells us that a minister of the gospel is a godly man. A godly man. Now, he, he doesn't say a perfect man, but the trajectory of the minister's life is the trajectory of godliness. Look at 7b through 9. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And here the Apostle Paul, as he speaks of the godliness of the minister, remember Paul is talking to Timothy the pastor as he uses language to encourage him toward godliness and growth in grace, he uses the language of the gymnasium. Uh, he says in verse 7, train yourself for godliness. Uh, it's a present imperative that actually means keep on exercising. Keep on exercising. 
In other words, godliness requires constant exercise. Those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ come to faith in Jesus Christ only by God's grace. We continue by grace. But when we have come to know Him by grace, there is put within our souls a longing to prosper and to grow in that grace. And godliness requires constant exercise. And this is not only true of the minister. This is true for you as well. Now, he's addressing a pastor, but it's true for all of us, everyone who is here. The minister is to lead because it's simply true that the congregation will not ordinarily mature beyond the godliness and maturity of its leadership. The minister should lead in this, but all of us are to grow in godliness. Ordinary exercise, Paul says, Ordinary exercise of the body is very good and it's profitable, but it's only for a while. It's just for this life. Godliness affects all things in life and is forever. One is physical only, it's useful, but godliness relates to the whole man, to every area of life, and is eternal in duration. As he puts it there in verse 8, holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So, The minister is called upon, and all Christians are called upon, to grow in grace and to be godly. What does that mean? What is godliness anyway? Godliness is a Christian heart and life longing and learning to live according to the standard of God's Word. Let me repeat it. Godliness is a Christian heart and life longing and learning to live according to the standard of God's Word. And this requires spiritual exercise. As a matter of fact, it was a fateful saying, evidently, for he says in verse 8, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is a trustworthy, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now you've seen that already. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, the apostle says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Well, now he gives you another trustworthy saying. Remember, these were sayings that were slogans in the church. These are things that were being said around the congregation that should be passed down. One of those sayings is, in essence... You need to grow in godliness by spiritual exercise. That's what you need to do. You won't build muscle without exercise. You won't build uh, biceps without um, pumping iron. You won't get your heart rate up without running or walking or swimming or cycling. So how do you expect to grow your spiritual life and to be godly without constant exercise? How do you expect that? How do you expect to grow in godliness if you do not have private time in God on your knees pouring out your heart in prayer? How do you expect to grow in godliness if you do not read and study the Word of God for yourselves? How do you expect to grow in godliness if you do not make use of faithfully the public means of grace, public worship, and the sacraments that He has given, and the Word of God proclaimed and preached? 
how do you expect physically to get anywhere if you don't have some goals? Now, my goal is to run the marathon, or my goal is to be able to pump so much iron. Well, if you want to do that, you have to set goals and a way to reach those goals. Well, the same is true in your spiritual life. My goal may be to increase my prayer list and to be faithful at it. My goal may be to increase my understanding of Scripture by study. Or my goal may be to memorize Scripture and to get it way down in the heart. But if you have no goal, you'll never reach it and you will not grow in godliness. Does that make sense to you? That's Paul's comparison. Physical exercise is really important, yeah. But spiritual exercise, where is that in your life? So granted, Paul addresses Timothy, the young pastor, but it is applicable to every one of us when he tells him, in essence, focus and concentrate on the things that really matter. You know, back there in verse 7, look at it, where he says, train yourself for godliness. The verb is derived from the adjective gumnas. We derive our word gym from that word, and the word means naked. Because in Grecian society, the young men would take off their clothes so that they would not be hindered as they would compete in the games or run in the race or whatever they might be doing. Maybe Paul, this is fascinating to me, maybe Paul saw Grecian games. After all, even though he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he grew up in Tarsus, which was a very Grecian city, and Paul was a cosmopolitan individual. He knew many languages. He had seen a lot. Uh, Hold your finger here and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, It's fascinating, actually, to think about this. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 24... 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Run the race with the goal of winning the race. Now, William Hendrickson, New Testament uh, scholar, actually summarizes this beautifully. What Paul had in mind, accordingly, says Hendrickson, must have included one or more of the following comparisons. Just as a youth in the gymnasium exerts himself to the utmost, so you too, by God's grace and power, must spare no efforts to attain your goal. Just as that youth discards every handicap or burden in order that he may train the more freely, so you too should divest yourself of everything that could encumber your spiritual progress. Just as that youth had his eye on a goal, perhaps that of showing superior skill on the discus range or winning the wrestling match or boxing bout in the palestra, that of being the first one to reach the post which marked the winning point on the running track, at least that of improving his physique, so you should constantly aim at your spiritual objective, namely that of complete self-dedication to God in Christ. Now those are good comments. Now, here's my question. What are you going to do about it? 
I'm sure you agree. The pastor should be a godly man and he should strive for it by all the means of God's appointment. But I'm sure you also agree that what he says to Timothy also was applicable to Timothy's congregation. What he says to me is applicable to you. What are those things that you need to lay aside that are hindering you running the race? What are those things that you need to get rid of as a believer in Jesus Christ that just don't belong in your life and they're hindering your growth in grace? You know it shouldn't be there. You're not submitting to the Lordship of Christ in those things. Uh, what What about this lazy attitude toward growth in grace? Now, my friend, I'm not talking works righteousness here. Grace produces effort. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives speaks to us on a Sunday morning like this through His Word and says, that's the point, way down in your heart. This is the issue that needs to be addressed. Get rid of this. Put this in. This is the Spirit of God at work. So don't slough it off. I've had to apply this pretty hard to myself before coming and preaching it to you. So ministers must seek to be mature and advanced because the minister is called not to a common work, but to a very special work. And everything in his ministry is related to the vigor of his personal piety. You know this name, Robert Murray McShane, Scottish minister, 19th century, Dundee, died, as I recall, at age 29. When he died, his name was synonymous with godliness in Scotland. And he said, It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. A word spoken by you when your conscience is clear and your heart full of God's Spirit is worth 10,000 words spoken in unbelief and sin. But what McShane said to the minister is also true of you, Dad and Mom, when you teach your children or when you speak the gospel to a friend. A holy Christian is an awful weapon in the hands of God. Do you believe that? What are you going to do about it? Thirdly, we've seen that the minister is a teacher of the word. We have seen that he is a godly man. And now he is a faithful and hopeful worker in the church. Verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, It sounds like he's thinking already of a race, doesn't it? There's a goal out there to which he's going. Our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Paul's goal is a life of godliness, and to that end, he labors, kapiomen, he labors to the point of exhaustion. He strives, the word there is from agonizomai, you hear the word agony? He strives just as an athlete would strive. And he does this work, he says in verse 10, hopefully. And whom does he hope? Well, look at verse 10 again. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And whom does he hope? God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now, most commentators think that Paul is distinguishing kinds of salvation here. 
that he delivers all mankind at various times in temporal ways, but especially as the Savior of Christians, those who believe the Savior spiritually. I think the word translated especially can mean that is. And so Paul is saying all kinds of people, that is, to be more specific, believers. But whatever the nuance, what is clear is Paul's hope for the success of his labor is not in himself but in God. Paul's hope for the success of his preaching and teaching, his growth in grace, his godliness, his striving to be a godly man, the hope is not in himself, not in his own strength, but in God. God is the Savior of believers, specifically through his Son who shed his blood, and that is where our hope is found. And this is essential to Paul's ministry and to godly living, because Christians are not hopeless people. Is there someone here today and you are absolutely hopeless? You're hopeless. Let me point you to Jesus Christ, to God, our Savior. Christians are not hopeless people. We believe that he will use our ministries, that he will lead his people to their determined end. And this is very important for a minister when he's shipwrecked or stoned or derided or opposed or his congregation is in a slump but it's also important for you to live in that hope of God and all that he has revealed concerning himself. And it's important for you, lost person, because you're hopeless without him. Now let's, let's focus there for a few moments. This God is the God of hope. We do not trust ourselves, but we trust this great God who saves. Think about Paul who persecuted the church, saw the risen Christ, spent his life laboring and toiling in places like Athens where very few believed and other places where he was stoned, at one point even left for dead. And yet he says, I hope in God. He believed the gospel. He believed that the gospel would save souls. He had no doubt about its power to cast down idols and dethrone error and deliver from sin. And he called Timothy to minister in hope. And for Paul the Apostle, the word hope is never far from the word resurrection. And I have no doubt that when he uses that word, he, he believed, he thought, and he would have us think, Christ risen from the dead. That's where our hope is found. That's where your hope is found. Lost sinner here today, if you do not know Jesus, this God is a God of hope. God can save you from your guilt. His love can break your hard heart. His cross, his shed blood can cleanse you of your sin because he is the God of hope. So, only these verses this morning. What is a minister? He's a teacher of the truth. He is a leader of his people in godliness, and he is a faithful and hopeful worker in the church. Now, I gave a title to this sermon in the bulletin. It wasn't a mistake. V-D-M. Some of you know what that means but I was banking on the fact that most of you didn't because I wanted to tell you what it means. You see, many, many years ago, 
uh, after a minister's name, you would see the initials V-D-M. If you go to Europe today and you go to old cemeteries and you find ministers, clergy graves, often after the name of the clergyman, the minister, will be the initials V-D-M. You know what it means? Verbi Dei Minister. Minister of the Word of God. Minister of the Word of God. The minister spends his entire life attempting to master one book and to be mastered by it. He has a radical commitment to study and preaching and godly living and hard work. He has a desire to get others into the very words of the text. Not passing words on a screen. I want you to have an open Bible in front of you. I want you to follow the argument in the passage. I want you to work with me from Sunday to Sunday, from passage to passage, and see the argument of the whole epistle or the whole gospel or wherever we may be. Because the authority is in the text, in the very words of the text. Do you understand that? It would be a lot easier for me just to take a topic and to give something that would interest everybody. Let's talk about dating this morning. The place will be filled. Is it worthy to do? Sure, it has a place. The minister's primary call, however, is to take the Word of God and expound the Word and to go through the hard work of understanding it and to help you develop the discipline of getting your mind and heart focused on the text. Because that's where the loveliness of Jesus is found. It's in this book that the loveliness of Christ is found. It's in this book that Jesus the Savior is revealed. And so I say again, unbeliever, will you now trust the Christ revealed in this book? You know, a man went to jail once, a Christian, and he saw a great infidel who was in jail. The Christian had his Bible under his arm. And the infidel said, what? Believe that book. If that book is true, I'll be damned forever. Better read this book. Better read it. But believer, let me ask you, as your ministers preach to you week after week in a variety of settings, are you bowing before the lordship of Christ revealed in this book? Church, are we bowing before the lordship of Christ revealed in this book? Because today's plan in modern approaches to Christianity often is to assimilate the church into the world, which we must resist might and main. Charles Spurgeon said, the moment the church says, I will be as the world, she has doomed herself with the world. No good has ever come from Christians conforming themselves to the world. To conform to the world, its way of thinking, its standards, its approach, to conform to the autonomous approach of the world is to remove ourselves from the standard under which God has placed us, His Word. It is to spit on Calvary. It is to detest God's revelation. You know, when an ambassador 
is refused, the wrong is not done to the ambassador. The wrong is done to the king who sent him. And so when the ambassador speaks the truth to you and you refuse it, the wrong is not done to the ambassador. It's done to the king who's revealed himself in this book that is being proclaimed and expounded. And so I ask you as we continue next week, will you pray that your ministers will simply be VDM, ministers of the word of God? Will you pray that we will simply be faithful ambassadors to expound and apply the text? And will you pray that you will have an open mind and heart to receive everything it teaches and to believe and repent daily underneath the authority of God's own word, the Bible? And God's people said...